On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Werewolf by Night, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I want to point out that I'm also a werewolf during the day. Are you, then? Is that is that because of your, uh, I mean, I've been talking to your wife about your hairy nature, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> is that the case, Liam? Liam, werewolves, yes or no? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in the pro, pro werewolf camp? I mean, what are we saying here? As just a general concept, they were as kid growing up my favorite monster like of all like i was convinced that the universal monsters were the actual like ontological order of monsters that sure that's mm-hmm. what monsters existed and the werewolf was the coolest one as far as i was concerned that that's where it's at is the werewolf if we're talking about a film idea there's really not that many great ones but i still think werewolves are pretty cool Liam, when I was a kid, I saw The Monster Squad, the movie The Monster Squad. Sure. And my brothers and I were obsessed with that movie. To us, that movie was like E.T. We just watched it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Were you a Monster Squad kid? Big fan, big fan. Liam, could you rank the monsters in The Monster Squad for me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm, this is actually... I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Now, what I, I guess I should make it clear, we're, we're kind of ranking the idea of these creatures as opposed to necessarily how they're presented in that particular film. Well then then I then it's then the order for me is easy because then it's werewolf, vampire, uh creature, mummy. No, oh, you didn't say Frankenstein. You knew I was gonna catch you catch you on it. What about Gilman? Oh right, 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 oh, right, right, right. Liam. I forgot about Gilman. Fool. Hold on. I would put Gilman above mummy in in the larger scheme of things in the movie mm-hmm. gilman is kind of the coolest look like the look yes. is so sick but in in the larger scheme of things i was not very old but i was older when i finally saw creature for the black lagoon and that's actually one of my favorite of the universal monster movies now mm-hmm. but it took me a long time to see it i wasn't immediately jumping on that train as like a seven or eight year old i like the mummy liam why for what I reason like- because I, specifically because of the Monster Squad, the idea that he's literally just wrappings and dust with a skull in it that you can unwrap, <laughs> and it's just like dust flying out, and somehow that's being held together through magic or force of will. To me, there was just something very appealing to the, about that. And of course, how how uh, how sad is that creature, the Frankenstein's monster, Liam? Pretty sad guy. Yeah, Speaking I mean, of, I would think being a sad guy yourself that you'd feel pretty uh, a connection with. Uh, Frankenstein's monster. Oh, like we have some sort of sad boy click going mm-hmm. on, me and yes. Frankenstein. Absolutely. Um, no, I'm. You know, I. I think as a book, that's a that's my favorite of the like. You know, I like that actually way more than Dracula. But boy, as SJW a, right here. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I'm down. That's fine. But uh, opinions on the monster canon here. But as you. I was a, when I was a little kid, I thought he was cool. But it just seemed like like if I was going to break it down, it's like okay, he's real strong, and uh, and he's dead. 
And that's all I got. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, it's hard to stack up against uh, vampires because, you know, I was into the full range of vampire powers. You know, there's transformation, hypnotism, smoke, all kinds of crazy shit. Liam, I would love to talk about monsters all day with you. In fact, maybe off mic, we will do that. <laughs> but our guest today is the senior film critic for Now Magazine and the host of the wonderful Someone Else's Movie podcast. It's Norm Wilner. How are you doing today, Norm? Oh, thank you. I'm good. I'm, I'm doing fine. It's cold, but I'm managing. I, I feel like we're not allowed to complain about the cold because <laughs> other parts of the world, not usually distraught by cold, are experiencing it. Though at the time, hopefully that people are listening to this podcast, that will no longer be the case. Norm, werewolves, yay or nay? Oh, I like werewolves. I yeah. think it's hard to make a good werewolf movie because mm. you're constantly, well, you want to pander to the audience, right? And the audience wants monsters and flesh and, and ripping and, and claws and naked people recovering from being werewolves and all of that I'm stuff. I'm sold. It sounds pretty good. No, no, it's a good package. The problem is that if it's just about werewolves, there's very little drama. Um, it's kind of like the Hulk, right? Because anytime... A regular person is around you're like well where's the hulk or you know this guy's not a werewolf he's just complaining about being a werewolf we, we wanted a werewolf so i i find that and we were talking about this before we started recording i find the werewolf movies that use the werewolf as a device or a metaphor are way more interesting like ginger snaps or uh or the howling which uses it really well as a sort of a parallel to the the est um quasi-cult self-empowerment stuff that was going on in california in the 70s or uh, or American Werewolf in London, where it is really a ticking clock film that just happens to be about a werewolf. But the movies that use werewolves as just a bunch of people stuck in a room waiting for a werewolf to come and kill them, you know, I want to follow the werewolf. I want to I want to see what the werewolf is doing. I don't care about the regular people. Um, do do better. <laughs> do better. Bring that That's werewolf in. Let's see what he's up to. Yeah, as, as a film critic, that usually is my biggest complaint with uh, with genre movies that just don't do anything new. It's like there is already five movie or there's a five or ten movie pile that's doing what you want to do so find a way to make it different do better it's one of those kind of eternal problems with with the fact that so many people are so strongly influenced you know you get into filmmaking because you're strongly influenced by a series of movies or maybe a particular movie and then you finally get the cloud to be able to make the movie and you just make a movie exactly like that movie that influenced <laughs> you. It's so, you know, I watch a lot of micro budget shot on video cinema. It was sure, kind of my yeah. wheelhouse for years. And what you'll find is because, especially because the people who are making them will have no money. There's a thousand Friday the 13th clones and Nightmare on Elm Street clones and particularly Halloween clones simply because they love slasher movies. And they're like, well, you, they did it with no money. I'm going to do it with no money. And it's <laughs> like, that's not all it was. It, was. it wasn't just someone going out to make a movie with very little money. Yeah, the, the idea, the, the other side of that coin is one of the things I like most about micro-budget cinema is inspiration. That you see someone with limited resources, maybe limited talent, but they have the freedom to do whatever they want and they can take those ideas into very strange places. And, you know, I think that that is uh, admirable, but also to play back into what we're going to be talking about today, it's why I like Joe Dante movies because he comes from that school of very mm. low budget filmmaking. Uh, and he also is someone who obviously really respects the history of film. And you can see that in his movies, including including The Howling, which we're going to be talking about today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like he's like The Howling is a celebration of itself and its genre, and all of the, all of the, the characters have strange little names. They're, they're, they're designed <laughs> to make you think of horror directors or just 
like straight out animal names. People are eating wolf brand chili all the time, like straight out of the can. It's, it's, I mean, if it was established with Piranha, basically, that if you want to make a horror movie that audiences will enjoy forever, you just put Joe Dante and John Sales in a room together and say, figure this out. <laughs> and they, that's what they did. Norm, we're, we're ostensibly here to talk about the actor Dick Miller. And uh, though this was not the reason that I asked you to come on the podcast, you let me know that you were actually involved with the Q&A involving the Millers a few years back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I actually interviewed Dick and Lainey Miller uh, by phone the first time uh, when the film was coming. And then uh, they asked me to host a Q&A or moderate a Q&A with them after a screening of the film at the Carlton Cinemas. Uh, remember when we... We sat together in rooms and watched things oh, together. That was nice. It was a beautiful uh, And time. they were just, they were delightful. They're just like, Dick Miller is somebody I have literally grown up watching. Uh, I was maybe, well, Gremlins came out when I was 15, but mm -hmm. I'd been aware of him before that and stuff like Little Shop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood. And I was a, I was a nerd who liked horror movies. And <laughs> eventually you realize Dick Miller's in everything. And so when it turned out, when I, when I got the opportunity to talk to him and, and to his wife, Lainey, who was lovely, um, it was just like, yes, of course, absolutely. Yes, yes, I, I would love to do that. And I was like, there's this, hmm, how can I put this? Um, oh, uh, when I started at the Toronto Star reviewing uh, video like releases, which is how I ended up seeing all the cheap slasher knockoffs in the late right. 80s and early 90s, um, <laughs> I did a few interviews with... Uh, I sort of tagged along with Rob Salem, who was the editor and kind of my mentor, really, as sure. as he as he did stuff. And he told me something that he'd learned. It's a, it's a really good secret. It's called the 16 rule. Anybody who was famous before you were 16 years old, before you had a sense of self and really understood where movies and TV come from and how they're made, you're going to have trouble um, – talking to that person for a minute because they are the person you've been watching your whole life. Like they've, they've been, they've been part of your uh, essential knowledge base basically. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so Dick Miller turned out to be one of those people where even though like I didn't talk to him until I was in my forties, it's just like, Oh no, no, this is Walter Paisley from everything. I, I have to treat him <laughs> with considerable respect. And he is absolutely, or was sadly uh, absolutely unpretentious and completely at ease with being a that guy. By the time we spoke, I think he would have been 82 or 83. Mm. And he was just like, yeah, you know, it's great that they held up. I'm so glad these movies are still being talked about and finally like making money. That was kind of important to him, too, that not just that they were being recognized, but that they were selling. Because, you know, when when he started, it was just a couple days work and a picture with Corman. And sure. um, he would go in and he would shoot a thing. And sometimes he would shoot a whole movie and sometimes he would shoot a guest appearance and it would take roughly the same amount of time. And he would just do the work and he was great at everything. I mean, that's what the documentary really points out mm -hmm. is that if you watch him, you see an actor. You don't see a guest star or a guy who's just turned up. He has thought about this and come through it and read the script and talked to people and built a character. And every single time it's a real performance, which is kind of amazing. I mean, um, Walter Paisley, the version of Walter Paisley, we see, like, I, my theory is that Walter Paisley is a quantum, like, Uatu the Watcher. He's, he's, he is always the same in everything. And the reason he's so impatient in Terminator is because he knows he's going to die. And it's like, well, let's get, let's get this over with. But he's not protesting it because he knows he's also immortal and he'll just reincarnate in some other, like, he's done enough films with the same character name that you could actually probably make this case seriously. I, I don't. I don't believe it's true. Yeah, but yeah, the version of Walter, 
Sorry, I was just going to say, I'd love to see someone try, try to write that article, right? Try to piece this chronology together to make the life and times of Walter Paisley. Oh, it's a BuzzFeed list now. I mean, I'm sure yeah. someone's done it. Um, but, but the version of Walter Paisley that shows up in The Howling is a guy who is who has literally seen everything. He's, he reads the books because he's bored and he knows stuff and he also knows it isn't true. But he keeps saying that, you know, like, I'm just here to sell books. But at the same time, he is a fount of information and delivers all of it. He's, he's the exposition machine and he does it in character. Like he doesn't seem to be reading off the text that we all need to know. It's just like, it's, it's a thing he knows and he's annoyed that no one else does. You know, real werewolves can change any time of the day, day or night, whatever. It's like, he doesn't, like, why don't you already know this? I know this. And it's so relatable and great. And, you know, he has two scenes in the film, but they're just, they're delightful. I mean, it, to me, and I'm, I'm probably uh, giving a little way, too, a little too early here, it's my highlight of the entire movie. I love that his, he's a character that is a lot more kind of overtly comedic compared to the movie that he's in, even though it's, it's a, <laughs> a movie that, that has a lot of humor in it. He is the, the comedic character, but he fits in tonally with the entire thing because he's just that level of gruff that's believably gruff, that occult bookstore owner who doesn't really buy into it, but still has this encyclopedic knowledge of everything that he's surrounded by. Just an incredible moment. Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Norm, I got to ask, simply because you, you, you brought it up, how do you deal with that intimidation factor when you are talking to somebody who, I'm not going to put words in your mouth and suggest words like, like hero and stuff like that, <laughs> but, the, but these people who are kind of iconic because of where they place themselves in your own kind of history of popular culture yeah it's um honestly it can be a lot of fun i mean if you if you're in the right circumstance and you and you've got somebody on the other end who is aware of his legacy the way that miller is like mm -hmm. was he he didn't it's not something to be lorded over because if you talk to him about it it's just like oh you know work is work i like that i i like that people knew who i was and would cast me uh which is what it kept coming back down to is like there was a point where the people who grew up watching him suddenly became people who were making movies themselves or casting directors. And, and all of a sudden there was a steady stream. It was mostly television work, but people mm -hmm. just kept saying, Oh, we can get that guy. Let's get that guy. He's great. And that that made him really happy because he was being recognized for what he could bring rather than one thing that he did or, you know, uh, one fight that he had publicly, like that kind of thing wasn't important to him. He, right. he was like, he was part, he, he was outside the studio era because of when he started and because he worked with Corman, but he grew up with that. He grew up with a world where everything was manicured and, and carefully processed and presented in silver screen magazines and stars or celebrities and actors were all the same thing. And he was like, he was a method guy. He was a working actor who just liked to do the stuff that people would let him do. And once mm -hmm. he realized people were coming to him and asking him to do that thing, that just made him really, really happy. Uh, so he was completely relatable on that level. And I, I had no trouble just sitting and talking with him also because he'd aged into a version of himself that was just like Dick Miller was always 75 years old even <laughs> when he was 40. And it was just really comfortable. He was a little deaf, but he made fun of that. And he was just kind of right. going, huh? In that perfect gruff old man way, like everybody's <laughs> grandfather. It was just, it was terrific. If he needed to buy time after a question, he would just kind of do that. And uh, his wife was, Lainey was absolutely wonderful with him. She was just doting on him and making sure that everybody knew how special he was, but also how special, you could just see the, how special she thought he was. Mm -hmm. And they just had a lovely relationship. It was really easy to sit down with them in person. It, that really comes through in the documentary as well. Liam, I just wanted to throw something over to you for a second, which is that I have a kind of a weird pet peeve in movies. And really, it's kind of funny to, to, to say because I love 
this movie. I love American Werewolf in London. But that kind of, of era of filmmakers, the, the kind of uh, post, you know, late 70s, early 80s, the, the post-film school nerd guys, but the ones particularly coming out of the Cormac camp and around that, that a lot of the in-jokes that they put in their movies, I love it, right? Because it just makes <laughs> me feel part of this wider world. But I do think that it kind of birthed a winkiness where they're, especially when you get into the mid and late 80s and every movie has a Professor Romero and, an, you know, everyone's last name is Carpenter or, or King or whatever. And it gets maybe a little winky. And I also, also feel like a lot of uh, Dick Miller's later career actually benefited from that for a certain extent. People would put, them in, uh, put him in their movies specifically as a reference to say, hey, we've got Dick Miller here. Is that something that irritates you, Liam, or is that something that I should just get over, that it's uh, it's not something that should be taking me out of movies while I'm watching them? It depends on how far it's pushed. Uh, right. in, my, in my mind, if it, it, I think there's a line between this is fun and this is excessive. You know what I mean? And um, I don't know. I, I It's interesting you say that because I it's never bothered me before, but I've also not found it that cute. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't think if I'm watching something and it's like, oh, this is blah 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 Cronenberg. I'm never like, <laughs> oh my god, is that like the director Cronenberg? That's so neat. You know what I mean? It's just a thing that I go, oh yeah. You know, it it has no power for me one way or the other. And I bet that th- that in some cases, that's probably would be annoying to these writers and directors to know that I don't care. But it's like I guess because it it it. it it got so excessive that after a while I just thought it's just a thing that happens. You know, I don't know. People do it. Whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I guess it, it particularly when it comes to um, the popularity of shot on digital video films in the early 2000s. Right. A lot of horror movies were made that were extremely derivative. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But ones that were it kind of felt like the filmmakers felt like. Now that I'm making a movie, I'm part of this group, and as a part of this group, now I need to make references right. to all the movies that I like. Let me let me put a horror poster in the background in this kid's room and be like, yeah, yeah, oh, but, yeah. yeah. And there's the Wilhelm scream and and things like that. Yeah, maybe I'm. I, I, it's probably just distracting to me because I watch too many of these garbage movies. But it is something <laughs> that I feel like it's kind of uh, it, its heyday was right here, right where you're watching right. these two movies that are so referential that you have your Forrest J. Ackerman, you have your Roger Corman appearance. You know, I say that, but of course, you know. I'll watch Silence of the Lambs that has George Romero and Roger Corman pop up, and it never takes me out of the movie there. Right. Maybe it has less to do with the winkiness and more to do with the quality of the filmmaking on display. Well, yeah, I mean, I think to me with this, we were just talking about this, and I guess we can get into this a little bit, but um, we were sort of sharing with each other, Doug, off mic, that um, we view this movie and American Werewolf in London almost in opposite ways because uh, an American Werewolf in London has a lot of jokes in it. And this movie doesn't have that many just straight up jokes in it. Like that's not a thing. But to me, and I guess this probably separates me from a lot of other other people. This feels like a sillier movie to me. Like I, as much as like uh, you know we have D Wallace going into the shady porn shop. Uh, as soon as Roger Corman comes into the fucking phone booth, I'm like, ah, it's that kind of movie, huh? You know, like I I feel like no matter how serious they're playing it, this movie is essentially silly in a way that I don't mean as being a 
disrespect to the movie. I am having fun with the goofy, like who's in it with the, like, as someone already said, the wolf chili, there's a certain amount of like <laughs> ridiculousness to this movie that I think makes it better. And so when people have said like, well, I prefer the howling because it's a more serious film. I'm always really surprised at that. I'm like, is it really serious? I mean, it's it's played serious. There's not like goofs per se, but I don't know if it's like a really serious movie. I, I don't know if I would like it as much if it was a really serious well, movie. Well, what I was going to say about the the duel of tones between The Howling and American mm-hmm. World from London is that with with The Howling, like the jokes are in the texture. They're they're right, part right. of the design. It is it is played straight. There's maybe three laughs in the whole thing. Right. But think about the way those cameos are used. Like it's not uh-huh. just that Robert J. Corman comes into the phone booth, it's that he looks for change because he's yes. always <laughs> yes. always trying to so make so fucking good. Yeah. And or Forrest Ackerman, Ackerman with that yeah, the famous epic, monsters. The issues of famous monsters behind his back. <laughs> it's just like it's the, sh- the it's the world of the movie saying it's okay, you know, like we know, we get it. And American Werewolf has jokes in the dialogue and they're good, but the tone of it is crushingly sad. Like it's doomed. And um, the howling doesn't give you that. Like the howling, no. I, I, I did see it in a theater once and there was an, un, I think it's an unintentional laugh at the very end. Can we talk about the very end? Yeah, yeah okay totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, when when Dee Wallace's nose is twitching and, and she does not look like a scary werewolf. She looks like a puppy. And it's supposed to be sad because she's doing this huge reveal and about to get killed. And we all know how this is going to go. But people were snickering at it because as opposed to all the other genuinely unnerving and scary werewolves, this one's sort of cute. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's supposed to be tragic and the makeup just Mm -hmm. doesn't quite land. Right. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. that's the only time the movie seems to be uncertain how to handle a moment. And otherwise, it's got this confidence uh, of like celebrating werewolf movies mm-hmm. in general and just enjoying these character actors and Patrick McNee being plummy and Slim Pickens just showing up and doing his thing. And mm-hmm. it like Joe Dante is inviting us to enjoy what he's built. And that's not what John Landis wants from an American Wolf in London. No. I, I mean, but I, I don't have a problem much... with the reference points either. I think it's like, I think it's just kind of fun oh, to experience them. In these particular movies, I don't have any issue at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but if you're, yeah, if you're going to name your scientist Jeremy Cronenberg, you better cast David Cronenberg. <laughs> you, know, you need to Jason X this shit. <laughs> uh, Liam, I can hear a lot of agreement there in your voice. Now, you, we we talked again. I don't want to to rehash anything, but why don't you just let us know which do you prefer, The Howling? Or American Werewolf in London. It's a movie. There are two movies released in 1981. They're often, you know, uh, discussed in comparison to one another. You have two of the big special effects names at that time: Rick Baker on American Werewolf, Rob Oteen here with The Howling. Which one do you prefer? I I go back and forth. When I was watching The Howling, I almost was like, "Oh, I think I prefer this to an American Werewolf in London." I think, though, overall. And this is just this is bad. This is a reference you already made, Doug. I think that as goofy as I can be, I am at heart a sad boy, boy spelled with an <laughs> I. And American Werewolf in London, the the when it ends on the tragedy of it, there's a part of it that's like, yeah, that's fucking right. Like it hurts so good. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I'm listening to Black Celebration. Like I'm really stoked right now. Like that's that's just sort of my vibe. On the other hand, when I say I prefer. <laughs> It to the howling. I think people who really love the howling take that as a huge, like slight or something. Maybe because they hated American Werewolf in London. I don't know. To me, these are both 
They might also movies. hate someone involved with that movie. I mean, well, that's that is true, an too. opinion that's out there. Oh, and let's be clear. I will not defend the, the <laughs> director of American <laughs> World of London at all. That's not my point at all. But I'm just saying, at base point, I like it more. That doesn't make The Howling not a great movie. And... I go back and forth. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? The Howling's better. Like, there are aspects of The Howling that I think are better. Not, you know, we we were just talking, Norm was speaking very, I think, eloquently about how a werewolf movie works better when it does, you know, the werewolf isn't the only point. And yet there's a small part of me that's like, but the werewolves in The Howling are sicker than the wolf in American <laughs> Werewolf. Like, I'm not trying to be a jerk, and the transformation scene in American Werewolf is world class. But, like... I just love walking giant. Yeah. I want my werewolf to look like an actual hell beast. And like, I, I don't love the, it's a big dog. Like the big <laughs> dog really bumps me out. But I think it works well in American Werewolf and the overall tone of the movie still wins me over. Well, Liam, rather notoriously, I was attacked by a, bull, a big dog last year and my finger was ripped apart. One, so you could see how a big dog would be pretty intimidating to a guy like me. I mean, I've been attacked by two big dogs, and I still think, oh, no, right. it doesn't right. work. I don't want to hear about it. All right, <laughs> Liam. Uh, while we were talking here, I put a question out uh, actually, a poll out on Twitter to see what people preferred. And the very unhelpful result is that currently, American Werewolf and The Howling are exactly 50% each in terms of what people prefer. So, <laughs> I guess the debate does kind of linger on. Uh, Norm, you're here. I got to put you on the spot. Do you have a preference between American Werewolf and The Howling? I honestly don't know that I do. I mean, mm. they just do what they do mm. so specifically that there's not a like it, they're not they're neither in competition with each other nor in conversation with each other. They just they're doing their thing separately. Like um, The Howling is a Joe Dante B movie. Like everything else he did around that time like piranha even like gremlins it's a celebration sure. of the werewolf movie and an american werewolf in london is a doomed love story that has a monster in it and they're both i we were talking about this too before we started recording and i think the real difference in in the, the execution of the two films is that in the howling like most werewolf movies the werewolves are happy with their condition and it's just something that they're cool with like they right. they, they don't mm -hmm. mind doing all the murdering and the eating of flesh and killing of, of people and and it's all about you know well the, the metaphor of the film is the empowerment thing and so of course they're comfortable with it whereas with an american world from london you're dealing with an almost um jekyll and hyde situation where david doesn't know uh, what he's done because he doesn't remember it. And that is Landis's genius in the script is that the werewolf forgets. He doesn't like, he just wakes up feeling great and has no memory of the violence and the, and the horror that he's created, or even the pain of the transformation, which is, which I remember at the, at the time being really fascinated by mm -hmm. um, the idea that the curse isn't really a curse to the person suffering it. And so of course he's not going to kill himself. And of course he doesn't believe it when people tell him what he's done, even though he's being haunted by these specters. And that, just gives it such a different tragic core, um, which almost now, 40 years later, somehow works as a metaphor for toxic masculinity, right? Like, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, yeah. you don't feel responsible for the horrible things you've done because <laughs> you weren't doing it or you didn't mean to and none of that. And then you go the words back. Max Landis are ringing in my ears right now. Well, exactly. <laughs> like, you, you go back and you realize that John Landis made this movie and clearly doesn't know that about it. Like that is not reflected in any of his other films or any of his you know in life behavior i don't know what to call that real life actions he doesn't know that he's telling this story and that's that i mean now that makes an american world in london even more fascinating because it's not even the subtext it's just 
kind of floating there uh, unconsciously. But I mean, if you're going to pick into them, you can pick into the howling and find the entire history of Hollywood studio horror. And if you pick into American Werewolf, you find all this stuff that it's predicting about the future right. in a weird mm-hmm. way. So it's almost as though one of them is the past and the next is the present. And they just form this perfect two-step. Gentlemen, I think it's time for us to take a break. When we return, yeah, it might seem like we've already talked about it, but we're just getting started. After the break, we're going to talk about 1981's The Howling. Please, you're going to purchase, purchase. Not leave him alone. You're getting greasy. We'll find out if any of Eddie's killings were on a full moon. Hey, that's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Your classic werewolf could change shape any time it wants, day or night, whatever it takes a notion to. That's why I call them shapeshifters. I got a dozen books on it. What about killing it with silver bullets? Well, sure. Silver bullets are fire. It's the only way to get rid of the damn things. They're worse than cockroaches. They come back from the dead if you don't kill them right. Plus, they regenerate. You know what that is? Cut off an arm, cut off a leg, stick a knife in a heart, nothing. They may look dead, but bam, three days later, they're as good as new. You believe in this? What am I, an idiot? I'm making a buck here. You want books? I got books. I got chicken blood. I got dog embryos. I got black candles. I got wolf paint. Look at this. Silver bullets. Some joker ordered them. 3006. Never picked them up. I take Bank America, American Express, Visa. You gonna buy that or what? Uh, yeah, these two. After a bizarre and near deadly encounter with a serial killer, a television newswoman is sent to a remote mountain resort whose residents may not be what they seem. Boy, what could they be? I wonder. It's 1981's <laughs> The Howling, directed by the legendary Joe Dante, of course, also the director of Gremlins, already featured on uh, this podcast, You Don't Know Dick, as well as Matinee, The Burbs, Explorers, uh, a lot of great, wonderful genre movies, uh, and written by the also wonderful John Sayles, who, of course, wrote Piranha, uh, as well as Alligator, Brother from Another Planet, became a very well-regarded and beloved director in his own right, including the director of Lone Star, a favorite movie of mine, as well as co-written by Terrence Winkless, uh, director of Blood Fist, which we talked about on a different podcast on Cinema Smorgasbord lately, as well as the director of The Nest and the remake of Not of This Earth, based on the novel The Howling by Gary Brandner. A star-studded affair, a lot of recognizable faces, in The Howling, including Dee Wallace as the lead, Karen White, our newswoman, uh, as well as Patrick McNee. Uh, Dennis Dugan, of course, is here. Kevin McCarthy, the great Kevin McCarthy. Just John Carradine shows up. Slim Pickens, a lot of familiar faces, as well as the great Robert Picardo. We're going to talk about all of them. But before we do that, I want to get your general thoughts. Norm Wilner, what do you think about The Howling? Oh, I like it. It's just, it's comfort mm. food. It's, um, you know, it's it's that perfect little moment of a genre film that is so much better than you expect it to be, especially in 1981 when horror was just about to have its renaissance. I mean, the creature stuff hadn't really got there yet because special effects were in such a lousy state. Mm -hmm. And then The Howling in American World came along the same like three-month period, if I remember correctly, and just completely revolutionized the way you approached monsters. Uh, I was not expecting very much from it. I saw it on video. I was too young to see it in the theater and uh, it was a blast. It's just, it's, it's, it knows what it is and it is so much that. Um, and it was the first time I think that Joe Dante really got to show people his sensibility of, I'm going to make this thing so I can build a playground and just show you what I love about it and still deliver a functioning narrative that doesn't collapse into self-reference because that wasn't a thing yet. He just, hadn't nobody had right there was there was maybe kentucky fried movie to to show you how you parody something at length and airplane was around but yeah the howling was produced before any of those things became reflexes and so it just becomes this thing that stands on its own yeah i mean it's silly when it wants to be um 
in a really fun, inviting way, but it's also determined to be a horror movie about monsters and it succeeds. Yeah, I think that's really the the key here is that it's a, an effective horror movie, even with all of that other material, all of those other, you know, I, I said before the break that sometimes I get a little bit irritated by a lot of these referential moments in these movies. But the mm. fact is, there's a lot of really scary moments in The Howling. I think that maybe as a straight horror movie, it might be a little bit more effective than American Werewolf, which also has its fair share of scares and certainly some jump scares that are very memorable. Uh, actually, I was gonna go. I'm gonna go over to Liam in a moment to get his general thoughts on The Howling, but I want to stick with you for a second, Norm, because I want to talk about sure. the poster for the howling now if you were someone who went to video stores in the 80s and 90s you're almost certainly are aware of this poster art of this woman clawing her way out of what appears to be a chest it was very striking to me i remember it so clearly seeing it for the first time and thinking this is too much i can't watch this movie it looks like it's too intense for someone like me i actually don't think it's necessarily the most appropriate poster for the movie that's actually inside of it but it certainly is a tremendous poster uh i have it up in front of you if you want to take a quick look any thoughts on oh yeah i've got the blu-ray right yeah here. any memories or thoughts on this howling poster and how effective it is well it's funny there's a difference between the poster on the film of the film and the poster of the book mm. or the art design of the book the art design of the book the woman has fangs oh and or canines i guess and <laughs> the difference is that when i saw the howling poster for the film I thought, oh, the monster is scratched behind, like the monster is behind her and scratching at the, like it's missed her and it's got this, it's got the poster screen. Oh. So that felt like the, like the woman screaming is in peril. You add the fangs and it's like, oh no, that's just a monster trying to kill me. So the way I interpreted the, like the Avco Embassy poster design was was much more sympathetic and kind of interesting. And it, it also supports what I know about the movie, which is that it's about a woman being chased by werewolves, <laughs> more or less. I mean, more than one, but ultimately it's D. Wallace's story. And yeah, I think it's great. It's it's simple. It's effective. The Shout Factory, uh, Scream Factory packaging ads, of course, the thing they always do, which is they design a new image, which is much more appropriate to our memories of the right. movie. And that's a lot of fun. But I really like the simplicity of it. I, I, you know, it's just from a time where you had an image and that's all you had to get people in the movie theater. Maybe you had a trailer, uh, assuming they were in movie theaters as well. But, you know, think about... If you've ever seen the teaser for The Fog, which is just the lighthouse <laughs> and the water and then a hand yep. coming out of it, that's how you sell something like that. You don't actually have footage. You're just evoking a feeling. And the poster has a single image in which to do that. And The Howling's a great one. I feel obligated to bring up the teaser trailer for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 at this moment where Leatherface oh, I remember is that. given a, from the Lady of the Lake, given a silver chainsaw, uh, quite yeah. a memorable teaser that is not connected to any werewolf movies that we're going to be talking about today. Le still, though, it's a shame that's not connected. Yeah, no kidding. I, honestly, there's still time to, to, <laughs> to bring that into the fold. Liam O'Donnell, your thoughts on 1981's The Howling? <clears throat> I mean, obviously, the first thing to say for me is that it's great. Um, it is, as as y'all have already sort of stated, it manages to be fun in a behind-the-scenes, under-the-surface way while still being, like, very effective. Even now, like, rewatching it for this podcast, when the werewolf shows up in the office, it still made me go, oh, God, he's right there. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're able to detach enough, I guess there's always going to be something silly about someone dressed up as a werewolf. But 
I am not that person. To me, these are scary werewolves. And uh, even when they're freaking out to get out of the barn so they don't like catch on fire, scary, unsettling, gets under my skin. Like like it it is a it is a very effective film that still has this uh, it has this element of fun to it that feels like the fun I associate with horror. It feels like a movie made by someone who's had a lot of fun watching horror films. Right. And so they still want to scare you, but it's very much like, yo, we're, we're doing this thing. We're having fun. This is about a, a history and a culture and, you know, whatever. So I love, I love all of that. Um, I, I, I'll add my thoughts that the poster is incredibly effective. In fact, the poster kind of fucked me up before i ever saw the movie and <laughs> the howling is the howling is one of those movies too i don't know if you have have, have had this experience where you watch something as a kid and you appreciate it but then you rewatch it later as an adult and realize like there's more there than you sure thought. of course you know Absolutely. what i mean oh yeah yeah this is a classic of that for me where i saw it at some point i don't have strong memories i just remember i saw it and thought oh yeah sure werewolf movie a lot of fun Kind of sad at the end. Whatever, werewolves. And I always liked the poster. And I kind of always wanted to get a copy of the poster, but my mom wasn't stoked to me getting a, this this bunch of horror movie posters. So it wasn't really my thing. Uh, and so later on, I think it was probably college, I was like, yeah, Howling, it's classic. We should get that. And watching it being like, oh, this is a lot better than I even realized. You know what I sure. mean? Like, it, it wasn't that I had negative feelings towards it. I had positive feelings. But it's actually... It, it was this realization of like this is actually very good um I, I honestly as we've we've talked about in the show a little bit doug you know my first horror movie was nightmare on elm street i kind of had the same experience as an adult when i rewatched it being like man this scared me in second grade i'm sure it's fine <laughs> and then being like oh no i'm still fucked up this still <laughs> fucks me up that that was sort of the thing but it wasn't just that i think as a kid because i wasn't intimately familiar with horror and and i'm still not a huge person like i don't have the depth of some people's knowledge but i have more now when i when i rewatch it i think when i was a kid i didn't get all that like a lot of the winking missed me you know what i mean like a lot of the behind the scenes context missed me as an adult i'm like oh this is very good and very fun and i think that was probably the difference and and it means a lot to me it's like those sorts of movies that you can come back to and not just be like oh it still holds up but be like oh this is even better Something about that like really charms me, and that's how I feel about this film. I guess that's kind of the smell test on that sort of wink and nods and cameos type movie is that if you could see it without any of the knowledge of that background and still enjoy right. it and appreciate it, that that just becomes more texture and more things to yep. go back and enjoy afterwards. Yeah, I can see how that, that makes a big difference. I actually have a question about about some of those things that maybe you didn't pick up on when you were a kid. One of the things I like about The Howling is that it's a bit more of a cerebral movie than a lot of the horror movies at that time period. I probably would attribute that to John Sayles, who I think of as a pretty cerebral writer and director. But the new agey therapy aspect of this movie is one of the things that kind of separates it and makes it very unique. Do you think that that part of the movie has aged well? Hmm, that's interesting. I... Uh, that's it. It's actually something. It's interesting you bring that up, Doug, because I was just thinking about mm-hmm. this. Because I think uh, the transition from the age of activism into the age of self help, and the way that I think, I don't know if it's causal, but historically speaking, the conversation went from changing the world to changing the individual for a lot of mm-hmm. people, uh, and, and and quite literally, they left one 
group of 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 uh passionate people for another uh with a different focus from outward to inward um i think a lot of that kind of cultural history is lost for people of a certain age and sometimes you see resonances of those same ideas both positive and negative right the 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 good parts and the bad parts are like rediscovered on by gen z now and so i wonder if in some ways, the movie, that part of the movie doesn't work because we don't realize how much anxiety there was about this at the time. But maybe it would work in a new yeah, way. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. For young people, because some of those things have cycled back mm. around again. I mean, if you want me to believe there's a huge difference between some of the communes in Northern California and what's going on with Goop. Uh, I, I I think they're actually quite related. I think those are actually part of the same sort of threads. Um, I know for me, when I was younger, I wasn't aware of all of that anxiety, but I did know enough media. Like, I had this general fear, Doug, and, and I don't know if we've talked about it in the show, but I had this general fear of, um, of these sorts of cult movements that came a little bit from a movie like this, but also... Um, this might seem like a stretch, but maybe you'll be able to follow me. Uh, scanners. Oh, interesting. I sure. had a feeling like like secret society sort of thing. But then also, I don't know if you've ever read any of the any of the Dazzler comics. <laughs> and there was a whole there was a whole cult of humans that were doing experiments to themselves to try to become mutants, and it ended up like killing them. But there was this whole like behind the scenes secret society that was connected to like politics and power. All of those things, including the sorts of things in this movie, it all went into my head, and I think it primed me for when I finally heard 90s hip-hop, and a lot of 90s hip-hop was just reading um, Behold the Pale Horse and reinterpreting it for the city. Um, I was primed for all that conspiracy theory stuff by these movies because I really thought there was something going on behind the scenes. It had something to do with puffy vests and shotguns, and <laughs> somewhere there were a bunch of white dudes in puffy vests and shotguns who were either going to like perform experiments on me or turn me into the fire starter or something like that. <laughs> uh, Norm, not that a movie has to quote unquote age well; that it's uh, required to to uh, live up to our our current climate uh, in terms of a subject matter. But any thoughts on that? The idea that maybe the the kind of therapy bent on this and new agey aspect might have actually kind of cycled around to be relevant again. I, I'm still processing that last <laughs> thing. But, um, Sorry, was that too much? I'm a weirdo. No, no, it, I, I apologize. But it's great because that is that is all anybody used to do right before the internet was synthesize the popular culture yeah. and figure out what it meant to them. So of course you would go there. And uh, I think your your mentioning of Goop and the wellness movement is absolutely where I would take this now if I was doing mm-hmm. a remake. Uh, but um, the thing about the Howling is that because it is so much about its time, it now plays like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it, it doesn't feel and also, I guess it's a movie that I'm familiar with and have watched in one way or another like for decades. So it doesn't feel like it's grown old this time through. You know, the technology was sort of cute. I was looking at all the broadcast stuff and thinking about cathode ray tubes and big old <laughs> TV cameras uh, in the studio. But it's um, no, the message is pretty much simple and and undiluted for, for the present day. You could tell this story right now. The only difference would be there would be like an Instagram influencer running around transforming <laughs> and ruining it for everybody. Like that would be the thing they would be trying to stop, not a serial killer. And the, the problem with the film is the strength of the film, which is that the motivation of the colony is never really clear. Right. Uh, they kind of want to eat people and humans are their food and their cattle and they're sick of eating animals but they also know that 
there are more of us than there are of them. And so they can't come out. And I don't know what they think they wanted to accomplish by turning D. Wallace and Christopher Stone. It's like, I don't think there's a, there, there's never a reason articulated that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, they seem to question it themselves even when it happens. It's, it's a little confusing. Yeah. I, yeah. And Dr. Wagner is, um, uh, he's not the most, uh, what was he's not the most convincing uh, therapist or the most convincing werewolf leader. It, like, I, there, there is no sense that he's ever in charge, even though he keeps saying that it's his place. So I think there's some stuff on the cutting room floor. I mean, it's a really tight movie at 92 mm-hmm. minutes. So they've probably yanked a lot of it. And I think sales is definitely going after a specific type of uh, est or or um, pro uh, I forget what the other one was there were there was a bunch of stuff like I'm thinking my brain keeps filling in Iron John mm-hmm. which was the 90s Robert Bly's thing about masculinity being sensitive you know like the warrior poet mythology but that works really well for a howling movie I think that's why my brain keeps right. throwing it up in mm-hmm. there it's like you could do that now about that you could do it about wellness you could do it about God help me, alt-right idiots becoming werewolves because that gives them yeah. the power they don't have yeah. in life. There are ways to tell this story in the present day that are dangerously spot on. And I think that's because it was spot on in 1981. Like this is the the stroke of genius of the films that it's about a thing that's always with us. How It just makes it, uh, wraps it into a more seductive pack. That- how unfortunate is it that we don't get a Patrick McNee werewolf in this movie? That's what I want to see. I, I want to see a... I think he didn't want to. I think yeah, it was no just, kidding. He, he didn't want to. <laughs> it was like a four-hour process, and he saw that and said, "You know what? I'll just have some teeth." You, you know what? You know what? What we were talking about though also makes me think of is uh, the brood, like that. Yeah, yeah. In, in a in a sense, the uh, the, the well, it's th- the same thing, right? Like it's a, it's a it's someone who's yes. discovering a cult as he goes, but can't yeah. control it. But I think the difference, of course, is that Oliver Reed is like give into it, and this dude is committed to repression. And like I, I agree, he probably chooses that. You know, it's probably just useful for him to choose the bullet instead of transforming it away. But yeah. I also wonder to what extent he just like he is actually just a repressed werewolf. You know, he's just too yeah, much yeah. repression is unhealthy. You know, he's repressing it all. <laughs> it's uh, and of course Oliver Reed also a uh, a famous uh, werewolf performer in the past. See it all everything all fits together. Uh Oh yeah, here. you want a werewolf in the 60s you cast Oliver Reed. I mean he looks like he's halfway transformed anyway. That right. barrel chest and the big build. <laughs> he was uh, um it's the same thing with um Anthony Hopkins in The Wolfman, which is a terrible movie. Like a terrible <laughs> movie. But if you want someone of that stature to play a monster, Hopkins was like, I've met him. The man's built like a bull. He's incredibly physically powerful. And you don't get that from him at all uh, on screen. He reads as like a much more timid person somehow. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's just part of his charisma, I think. But if you're going to, but, and he went for it. Like he let them cover him uh, with the, the yak hair and the fake ears and everything. For the, I, I cannot recommend The Wolfman. It is God awful and terrible, but I do have the Blu-ray because someday I'm going to want to show that to somebody because they won't believe me. Is the director's cut a significant improvement? I guess not if you just no. refer to it generally as terrible. <laughs> no. I mean, it, it was so many of those universal monster movies after um, after The Mummy. In fact, I, honestly, all of them, are, they're just unworkable. And that's something else that The Howling does that the universal films don't do, which is try to bring the werewolf into a conventional contemporary context without making it somehow antiquated. You know, like the, 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 the Tom Cruise mummy movie, also terrible 
just unwatchable. And it's a it's like a, a god awful remake of Life Force made by people who just who just saw the poster for Life Force and don't really know what it's about. But it's it tries to make it a present day story, and in doing so, it just fundamentally breaks the things that work about it. Um, the both the Mummy and of course because Russell Crowe shows up as Doctor Jekyll. It's like no no. Nope, can't do that now. You just you need to come up with a contemporary version rather than just move the action into the present day. And the howling is what if there were werewolves and how would that work? And it figures it out. Um, it's it's also weirdly enough the opposite uh, is the strength of an American werewolf in London, which is that it's a legend that no one really understands, mm. that everybody's terrified of, and you get it entirely through subtext and, and context clues in the in the slaughtered lamb you get it from that one scene where someone just says he'll change and never goes any further right. because it's too horrible to speak of and that whole you know rural english reality where it's in the earth you don't speak of these things that works for american werewolf because it's about a normal regular contemporary person blundering into something ancient and the howling is just like no they have tv they know what's going on they are just also werewolves and you have to deal with that. Norm, I feel obligated to ask you about the pre-Dark Universe, Dark Universe that included <laughs> Mike Nichols' Wolf starring Jack Nicholson. Any oh, thoughts on that the, movie? The G- <laughs> yeah. No, that was like the Jim Hart special, right? There was a guy named James Hart, James V. Hart, I believe, um, who specialized in taking properties and reinventing them for Sony Pictures. So he, they, <coughs> excuse me, uh, he did Hook. He wrote Hook for Spielberg. And from that he did, he got onto Bram Stoker's Dracula and then I believe also Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for Branna and then Wolf. And Wolf is the only one that's contemporary. And it's not a bad contemporization of werewolf stuff because it at least tries to, again, it finds a metaphor, which is, sure. you know, the alpha male world of <clears throat> New York publishing. But uh, it's it's interesting in the way that it tells its story and the way that we are allowed to be ahead of the characters. Uh, which is not something that happens in most werewolf movies. We discover things along with the characters. But the point of Wolf as a movie is it's ridiculous, and yet somehow it could still work for this guy. And Nicholson, like casting Jack Nicholson is three quarters of the work the script does. <laughs> it does it have Jack Nicholson him. pissing all over James Spader. James Spader, which, yeah. Uh, which I guess that's the selling point. For Wolf, I will say that one of the things about Wolf that, uh, just to bring it back to the Howling, is that it's about these very kind of elite, you know, well-to-do people that, uh, and and that's like what I should say is the lead characters, the main characters are those kind of people. And when they come to the colony in the Howling, you have a lot of kind of rural-ish people there, uh, and there's kind of a natural distrust that these characters have for these people when they first arrive they're like annoyed by all the questions because she's a celebrity and all that sort of thing and that it kind of plays into kind of your worst instincts regarding what you expect out of these people who you know may not have the the polish let's say of uh, sure, yeah. of the background that you're used to well and of course horror movies had been teaching us to be afraid of the people in the sticks for a decade yes. right hills mm-hmm. have eyes texas chainsaw massacre it's a classic a fish out of water trope in horror is that the fish out of water is the one that gets speared. Um, but the the cleverness about the howling is that they're immediately seduced. Well, Karen isn't. Karen is skeptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's got PTSD and, and she can't be considered a, a normal, like everybody keeps dismissing her concerns because, oh, well, you're freaking out about something else. This, this can't be real, which is something that works very well. 
for a werewolf movie where you you know like you actively have to deny the evidence of your senses in order to be part of the story if you're not immediately eaten but they also have her husband the the avowed vegetarian immediately eating steak and ribs and it's just like no he's into it it's fine and that kind of works because it suggests that there's something about the place that's working on them too right mm-hmm it's, uh, one of the things that the movie doesn't lean too heavily on, even though it's really about this kind of new agey therapy thing, is we don't really see many of those therapy sessions. We really only see kind of hints out of it in the background. It's one of the things that I think maybe it's it's great for the pacing of the movie. Like you said, it's very tight. It's very short, It's especially compared to modern horror movies. But Patrick yeah. McNeese's character, you just kind of see him speak a couple of times and other people refer to him as this guru and other people kind of be dismissive of him entirely, which I guess also kind of works into the fact that you can interpret that as the viewer that way. Maybe he's just some bozo, right? He's not even in control of the, his group when we see it at the uh, at the end of the movie. In fact, they turn on him shockingly quickly <laughs> once things yeah. go go badly. Um, you know, he, he wrote a book. He can quote from the book. I don't think there's anything more to him, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is is great. You know, the idea, too, it's it's a reverse Frankenstein where he didn't create the monster, but he still can't control it. He thinks he understands the problem, but he's wrong. And, you know, that's your science going wrong. That's your messing with the fundamental elemental flo- uh, forces of nature that, that werewolf movies sometimes touch on, but don't touch on enough, I think. Mm-hmm. Um you know, again, it's uh, you can treat it as a curse. You can treat it as uh, a way of life that's being passed along, which is similar to vampire stories, I think. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels it. with vampire stories in this. Yeah, well, the problem, thoughts, though, is yeah. that the werewolves are almost never allowed to take the pleasure in the vamp- in the in the mm, acts that the vampires right. take. The, the, the werewolf is a senseless monster, or at least that's how it's described to us. I mean, it's uh, not. To I mean, a certain, like, I mean, in this movie, it's, that's a little bit questionable, if only because well, yeah. the Robert Picardo character seems like he can, you know, he can feel that sensory pleasure. In, in fact, he enjoys even the fear that he lives. Well, I was going to say, yeah, mm-hmm. like Eddie Quist is pranking people as a werewolf at points in the mm-hmm. film. Like he's 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 screwing with people as a werewolf, which is pretty fun as a concept um, that, that someone can like it shows you the appeal of the curse, the power that it brings and the, the chance to do whatever you want without consequence. They can you know, like they're near immortal. They probably can't die, uh, which is something that only Ginger Snap seems to touch on. As, right. as werewolf mm-hmm. lore goes, but it's lurking there with all of them. It's also suggested in an American werewolf in London that you can kill them, but it's pretty likely that David will live forever if nobody shoots him. Right. That this just goes on and on and on. And Ginger Snaps briefly suggests that as a horror instead of fun. But in The Howling, it's just pretty cool to be a, a werewolf. Everybody's into it, except Dr. Wagner, who seems to want to get out. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think the thing with Dr. Wagner, it's worth mentioning, is that he's a... Uh he's a ambassador character like yeah, when you were yeah. saying like oh they don't seem to listen to him but we see a lot of scenes maybe not a lot but enough scenes to show that he has authority in the human world right. and it's almost like mm-hmm. that's part of the narrative there is that like inevitably the ambassador the representative of the subculture the people who are actually still you know behind the scenes a part of it they never take that person seriously like yeah, you know yeah. like he's he, in a way, his message is, if we conform in these ways, we'll be safe. And in the end, they're all like, right, but being safe isn't really the point. Like, Yeah, we I want to eat people. Yeah, I, I want to run I around hurting people. It's fun, you know? And <laughs> and so, like, the, 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 and it's interesting because the way that he then ends, right, in choosing death, the film almost seems to suggest, like, nah, he was wrong the whole time. <laughs> Well, I think it's also worth pointing out that he is the only English character in the film. Right, like he's right. the only import. He's an he's an immigrant to this colony too. 
So even if he set it up, he had to convince all of these people. And they're they're like clearly portrayed as more in touch with America. They're rednecks. They're yep. people of the earth. Yeah. Um, they got I Slim Pickens like, there as like a shortcut. So in case you yeah. don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. And and it's kind of weird that he ever got their trust in the first place. And maybe that's something else that we don't see, like a power struggle in play over this place and what it means. Because there are, I mean, sitting there watching it, you can think, oh, yeah, the colony makes sense. Like it does on its own, and that's why I'm I'm questioning their motives on bringing these people into it. Uh, if it's a secluded place that characters blunder into, then that's your standard horror trope as well. But having them be invited, it's like Wagner is trying to do something with the colony that the colony doesn't want. That makes it interesting too. Mm-hmm. Liam, I have a question for you. Sure. <laughs> the John Carradine character in this movie, he's introduced in this kind of gathering of these individuals and he seems happy at first but then he mentions that he he wants to kill himself and one of the other people there says that it's just something he does all the time for attention is there a suggestion here that the human side and the animal side in this movie are are battling each other to a certain extent and the same way that the doctor you know welcomes death at the end that some of these other characters their human side would be welcoming that as well or is that is that am i reading completely wrong (laughs) am i completely misinterpreting that sequence in it i'll be honest doug i don't really know that's one of the i'm not confused by that sequence because that felt very much like um you know, whether that's his human side or his werewolf side in the sense of like, because, you know, uh, we know this, uh, this is a little tainted by this being a rewatch, right? Right. When you rewatch it, you know, all these people are werewolves. So you're thinking about that, how they're acting based upon the fact that they're werewolves. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, it's weird that at this moment he wants to die, whether that's his human side or it could be his werewolf side. All this conforming is fucking killing me. And I have to get drunk not right, to go murder right, right. a human. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather be dead. But he so quickly at the end is like, I don't know. I got my shit together now. Like, let's do this thing. <laughs> that to me felt like, look, y'all, it's the climax of the movie. And we just need to go forward here. And we can't explore his suicidal tendencies anymore. That's sort of how I went. And it, it, it doesn't feel, it's one of those moments where I don't know what I'm supposed to make of it, but I'm also like not too concerned. Like I didn't sit there and go like, well, that just doesn't work for me. Like it just wasn't a big concern. I just thought that's interesting. You know, is it, is it, it almost seems as if, if he did want to die, maybe it was the prospect of living a quote unquote normal life that he wasn't okay with. And now that they're like, I don't know, I think we're going to go on a rampage and kill a bunch of people. He's like, sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Again, it's, it's a little unclear to me, but it doesn't take me out of a moment. I, I'll say, you know, we all said it was pretty good. I want to be pretty clear too. The only thing about this movie that really does rub me a little bit the wrong way where I'm like, I don't know if I like this is something Norm already brought up as her final transformation. I just have never understood why she looks like a cocker spaniel. Like I've just never, <laughs> I just never understood that decision because she doesn't have to, right? Like there's no, I don't know what the reason is. And it's always, it's always been a moment, no matter how much I love this movie, where I go, why did we do that? Why, <laughs> what was the point of that? Yeah, my my headcanon on it is that she's unwilling, and so mm. her unhappiness manifests mm. itself into a non-threatening kind of werewolf. Okay. But it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. Like no. there's nothing in the film that would that would explain that because if that's a thing, then werewolves don't have to be monsters, and obviously right. they're really good at being monsters. So yeah, right. I don't know. I yeah, mean, it even, could have easily had a variety of 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 wolf creatures 
at any point in the colony climax. Like prior to that, we only see a couple. Yeah, yeah. But in that big scene, there's a ton of them, but they all look the same. And right. so for her to suddenly look different, it just adds an angle in that you're like, uh, I don't know what to make of that, you know? Yeah, I yeah. think we're supposed to feel bad, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly it. The intentions behind that change on, on the news, is, and we're just talking about the ending for those who haven't seen it, though I imagine you'd be very confused at this point if you haven't. Uh, it's been 40 years. <laughs> yeah, you, you've had your opportunity. D. Wallace goes on the news live, uh, starts doing an editorial, changes into a werewolf, and then uh, she is intentionally murdered after changing, which is basically to expose to the world that these werewolf people exist and, and they're out there. And uh, I, There is a amazing moment immediately afterwards where you see the guy in the bar say it's amazing what they can do with special effects these days, which, hey, pretty realistic uh, response to, yeah. <laughs> to things yeah. these days when we know that people will not necessarily believe what's right in front of their eyes. But yes, the, the werewolf that she turns into, their intention is to be her to turn into a scary werewolf because she's supposed to be scary to convince the world of this thing. And it sort of undercuts it for her to be sort of the adorable werewolf. But uh, yeah, do we, I'm just trying to remember the woman that she connects with at the colony, do we see her turn into a werewolf? I mean, I know she does, but I guess it's because they all fit together at that point. You can't really tell one from another once there's a whole group of them and then there's just a bunch of swinging arms. I oh, just wonder no, she's if in the barn. Yeah, she's in yeah, the barn. I just wonder if there's any suggestion that her werewolf looks different at all in that circumstance. I'd have to go back and take a look. But yeah, it does kind of undercut happens, it. No. Yeah, neither do I. I. I do think that it is still a very effective ending outside of that. In fact, 100%. As a, as a concept, I actually like it more than the American werewolf ending, which has a very much like a, you know, they kill the wolf. We're going to end it right now and just leave you kind of in shock. This one feels more... It's strange, even though American Werewolf has kind of a more dour ending, this one feels in some ways a little more apocalyptic in the sense that they're still out there. The people aren't even going to believe that they're a threat. And, uh, you know, even the kind of head werewolf is still out there doing her thing, uh, setting up the whole series of Howling movies. Mm. Oh, it hurts <laughs> to think about these. I see, I've seen them all. And it's because I love the first one. And so every time you go back, it's like, oh, this one will get it. This one will figure it out. No, well, this is going to be okay. And it never is. They are all bad. Some of them are less bad than others, but they are all bad. There are currently eight Howling movies. <laughs> it felt like there were more. Aren't there? Is that right? I think there's more. I'm looking at it right now. They, they were numbered up to part six, and then there's The Howling New Moon Rising from 95 and The oh, Howling yeah. Reborn from 2011, which is the most recent film. Uh, but uh, and, and, of course, there's always talks about uh, potential remakes of The Howling. In fact, I'm certainly we will get a remake of The Howling probably. Oh, yeah. It's, it's inevitable. Yeah, inevitable. It's, it's, just, it's too simple. It's too good a concept to, to let go. I mean, we just came up with two different pitches right now, and they're, yeah. they're, I, I could see either of those happening. Copyright Cinema Smorgasbord 2021. Uh, <laughs> let us talk about Dick Miller as Walter Paisley, the occult yeah. bookstore owner in The Howling. Uh, one of his most memorable small appearances in a film. I think he actually steals the whole movie. I mean, it's just one of those things where you think back at it. He's so fun and so gruff and so Dick Millery in this movie that it's just really kind of iconic, uh, especially because you get to return to that character for just a moment after his one kind of big scene in it. Walter Paisley, of course, the name of his character from A Bucket of Blood, as we've referred to several times, and as well in a number of other movies that are paying tribute to that lineage. Uh, Norm, what are your thoughts on Dick Miller's performance in uh, The Howl? It's a, He's a delight. 
it's just great. He it's it's the genius of Dick Miller is that he finds a way to play this guy uh, who is. Have we talked? Did we talk about this on broadcast yet? Not on mic. I can't remember. I don't know. I don't Let's wanna... talk about it. Okay, just in case I'm repeating myself earlier, hopefully you'll cut it. Um, his gift is that he is tasked with all of this exposition and he's just <laughs> barfing it out because he's pissed off nobody else knows. It's like he does. He tells us repeatedly that he doesn't believe any of this stuff. It's all hocus pocus. Uh, and yet he is an authority, which is great because you need that character in all of these movies. It's usually Maria Ospenskaya who shows up in the, at the very <laughs> end credits here. You know, even a man who is pure of heart, all that. Um, he has to deliver all of it in a way that makes us register it and internalize it. So, it, you know, it's going to come in handy later. But his 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 entire affect is, why don't you know this already? And it's great. It's just <laughs> so impatient. And he's you know, like he's bothering the nuns that are coming into Braz. And he's just he's got so much else going on. It's, it's like the lie of the film is that he has the time to read all the books he reads because he's constantly in motion. He's always doing something. And he says, I, I got nothing to do. It's like, that's not true. He's probably running a bookie operation out of the back room. But there's so much life in that performance. And it's just, you know, what is it? Four or five minutes of screen time yeah. all in. Mm-hmm. And he tells you who this guy is. And it's just so fun. And that, is, that was his genius, is that he would always figure out how to best serve the material, whatever he was doing. Um, like just, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, he's, he's just there to do the joke, but he sells that joke and he finds a way to make it believable. And and this version of Walter Paisley is, he's just, he's great. He's like, he's the, I am I, convinced that there is a, a quantum Walter Paisley where it's the same person all the time because the guy he plays in After Hours, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, what did you expect? Come on. And that's exactly who this guy needs to be, because otherwise you'd stop the movie dead for those four minutes of exposition. And yeah, we learn the things we need to learn, but it's the necessary scene that everybody knows is coming. It's when you go to the bathroom. And instead, it's just like, oh, I like this guy. And he just tells you a story. It, it, I think it is his gift as an actor was that you see him pop up and then... You could you just want to know more about him as a person, right? You want to know more of his background. How did how did he fall into this line of work? How does his day-to-day life go? Like you said, what is going on that he would have all of this knowledge? He's also tasked with the ludicrous idea that he has this box of silver bullets that are right there. And he somehow makes that absolutely ridiculous concept, which of course is going to play into the ending, work <laughs> simply because he's like, yeah, someone ordered him, didn't pick him up. You know, he's just a continuously, eternally put upon. Uh, and you could, you know, you could absolutely see this character as being the same character as the gun store owner in the Terminator, as the the employee at the restaurant at in After Hours. I just like it. Maybe it's even larger than the Walter Paisley character that it's just Dick Miller himself is just playing the same Dick Miller-ish character in every movie he appears in. Um, it's hard to argue against it, right? I mean, is the, the whole thing in in this movie is like it's just one more goddamn thing today. And just. Even when uh, when Dennis Dugan comes back and grabs the silver bullet, it's like, I have to, we don't know how much those are worth. We have to weigh them. It's so great. Because again, he knows what to do in every situation. He's the guy who you want with you on the expedition. That's what should have happened. He should have took Dick Miller with him in the, yeah. uh, the climactic moments of the movie. But you know, Lima- he's got bad knees or something. They just couldn't bring him along. And then the story, the Walter Paisley character, it ends up at the uh, House of Ill Repute in Demon Knight. There you go. That's his his yeah. final See? bow. I think that's pretty appropriate. Liam, your thoughts on Dick Miller in The Howling? I mean, I think uh, I think we covered it. Like he's amazing <laughs> in it. I, I will say uh, I 
I, I have a strong suspicion, not a certainty, but a strong suspicion that this uh, role was an influence on one of my uh, favorite characters, which is Grunkle Stan from Gravity Falls. Yeah, uh, I can see that. The guy running the, the, the supernatural place that doesn't believe any of it, but is an expert. I kind of like the gruffness of it. Like there's As I was watching it this time, that was what was on my mind is, huh, Grunkle Stan. I wonder if there's <laughs> some, some roots of Grunkle Stan in, in this performance. But yeah, he's great. I mean, we've talked about this before, Doug, that like, you know, this is what you want is you want Dick Miller to show up and do the thing and he does it it's charming it's a lot of info but it's completely believable uh I'm sold on this idea that we have of like I'm picturing it almost like a like a fictional quantum leap like he's got to jump into all these fictional sure, right, universes right. and do his thing um except it's instead of looking like someone different it's always no, looking it's always like him. him yeah 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 exactly but uh oh boy <laughs> I love it I love it I love it um but uh yeah I I, I just uh I think it's true like I mean, I, I don't. There's a lot we can just say about the performance uh, in in and of itself, but I also think it's an important moment, right? Because um, it's the moment at which things are starting to become more real. Like, of course, as the audience, we're on board. The movie's called The Howling, but when they get all this information from him, all of that becomes important later. You know, it all mm-hmm. of it is part of 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 what is moving the story forward. So it's it's not just exposition for us. But like it's important for these characters to get to where they need to be for our man to show up and get those silver bullets like he he has to be like moved in that direction. And I think part of that is all this information that 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 character gives to him. So I I, I loved it. It's it's a joy. It's, uh, you know, Doug, we've done a few actor podcasts. This is one of the ones where so far Dick Miller shows up. It's a joy. It doesn't it doesn't really have to be a huge role even in this role, every part of it is enjoyable, and I'm so glad that he's there. Yeah, 100%. It, 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 again, <laughs> we've got a long way to go on this podcast, and maybe yes, all, not yes. all the performances will be quite this iconic, but this True. is one where it's a perfect mixture of performer, role, and a director who obviously has an incredible amount of affection for that performer. And, you know, it's one thing we haven't really talked about on this episode, but we did on our Gremlins episode that obviously Joe Dante had great affection for Dick Miller as a person, as a performer, and used him as his quote unquote, good luck charm uh, for the rest of his career. And, you know, it's, it's one of those wonderful collaborations that you sometimes see that, you know, we're still benefiting from looking back at these films so many years on. Uh, Norm Wilner, any final thoughts on The Howling from 1981, a film that you seem to enjoy very much? you think that it's a, a superior werewolf movie? I do. I like it a lot. Uh, we barely touched on Ginger Snaps, but if you're building a canon of, mm. of modern horror, modern werewolf horror, there's like five films tops uh, that even make it into it. And there's one of them always has to be The Howling, just because it, you know, even before An American Wolf in London opened, it pointed the way to make werewolves work in present day cinema and even yeah, you know, like it's 40 years old at this point but it still works and that's pretty great i i would love to see someone figure out how to make this work for the present day um but at the same time i would be perfectly happy if there are no more movies called the howling because <laughs> there are nine of them now or eight sequels and the only one of them worked and maybe that's a lesson we should all learn 
there's a there's some irony in the fact that we were talking about how this concept can support uh, a remake when there's so many sequels or people taking a swing and just missing again and again yeah. and again uh, sometimes with pretty reasonable resources on display as well but i guess we'll see what the future of the howling uh is going yeah. to be well i think the flaw is that every filmmaker subsequently just thought more creature effects like we just have to showcase how good creature effects are now and right. that's not what makes this work it's the control that dante uses uh, and, and, you know, the structure that sales brings to the way that the information is received and the way the story develops and the way the creatures are ultimately revealed. It's really smart about its limitations, but it's also really smart about what it can get away with with the audience and what it can ask from us. And I think that's Dante's particular strength. Um, you know, there's that moment in the burbs that I'll never forget because it made me laugh harder than anything else where... <laughs> The whole movie stops dead because Rick Dukeman doesn't want to go up a ladder. And he, <laughs> and, he and, and someone like Bruce Dern says, why won't you go up there? And, and Dukeman just looks at Dern and says like a four-year-old, it's very high. And somehow Joe Dante can make that possible in a giant, otherwise busy movie, like just to stop dead and have that little moment. Like the, like the moment where, where Werewolf Eddie takes a file out of someone's hand. And for a second, your brain is just like, did that happen? But yes, it did. And the movie made sure you noticed it because it's the fun of the genre that, that we're getting to experience. That's why Joe Dante loves Dick Miller, right? Like he knows what he signifies. Norm Wilner, I could talk to you about The Howling and honestly, everything else for hours. What a delight <laughs> it is to have you here on the podcast oh, a pleasure. talking about Dick Miller and The Howling. Uh, you, of course, have a wonderful podcast of your own and are a fixture online. Where can people find you in your work? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I can be read at nowtoronto.com, where I write about movies and television pretty much all the time. Uh, we've also just launched a newsletter on Substack called Now Streaming. So if you go to, I think it's nowtoronto.substack.com, you can find that. It comes out every Saturday, and it's about a thousand words of me just pointing at things and saying, this is worth <laughs> your time. Uh, also, there's a Now podcast called Now What, which you can find pretty much anywhere you find podcasts where you will also find my podcast, which is someone else's movie, which I do every Tuesday. And that is a forum for an actor, writer, or director, nebulous industry figure to talk about a movie that they love, but that they themselves did not make. So I'm trying to think if anybody's done a Joe Dante film. The only one so far, I guess, is Gremlins, which uh, Ben Blacker from the Thrilling mm -hmm. Adventure Hour and Dead Pilot Society tackled. And that is a great deal of fun. So that's probably my favorite thing that I do at all. But uh, yeah, um, I'm everywhere. And I'm on Twitter at Norm Wilner, just cranking about politics more often than not. But sometimes <laughs> I talk about movies. Uh, Norm is a wonderful presence online. And of course, his podcasts come highly recommended. We'll, of course, link those in the show notes today. Liam O'Donnell. Jerk, what are you doing here? <laughs> wow, that was that was passionate, Doug. I really felt the burn on that one. Liam, you and I, we do a lot of podcasts together. We spend a lot of time together. Frankly, I'm getting a little sick of it with this yeah. enduring oh, uh, pandemic. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, occurring. Why don't you tell people where you can be found on the internet? Well, I think people should head over to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, to check out not just this podcast, but an entire family of podcasts, a number of which also feature me, which I'm sure that everyone would be excited to check out. I don't, I don't fucking know. Uh, <laughs> they can also find Cinepunks all over the internet. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Um, uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Liam Rules. They can follow this specific podcast on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. Uh, and I think they could follow you on Twitter, Doug, uh, at Doug Tilly. That's 
uh, Doug underscore Tilly, rather. And that's T I L L E Y. Do not take my thunder. My spiel at the end of the podcast, Liam. Yes, you can also go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Check out our other themed podcasts, including podcasts devoted to such diverse actors and actresses as Carol Kane. We have a show called Praising Kane. We have a show devoted to Jackie Chan. We just recently launched. Jodorowsky, a podcast devoted to the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, we're joined by our friend Julia Marchesi on that show, but you can check them all out on cinemasmorgasbord.com. Once you leave us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it very much. But for now, we're going to need to say goodnight. We're going to be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody. Night. <laughs>